Welcome to Twill, the Week in Health Law, the occasional podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. This episode was recorded on August 1st, 2019. I'm Nicholas Terry, a professor of law at Indiana University in Indianapolis. This episode was recorded at the 2019 meeting of the Southeastern Association of Law Schools during a panel reviewing the year in healthcare financing. This episode features a talk by Professor Fazl Khan, who teaches health law and policy, bioethics, public health law, and international products liability at the University of Georgia School of Law. His current research focuses on several major themes, reform of the American healthcare system, the effect of globalization on healthcare, and the challenge of regulating emerging biotechnologies. His talk concentrated on the financing of telemedicine and the slow alignment of the technologies with healthcare value and other policies or strategies such as Medicare managed care. I'm Fazal Khan. I'm going to talk about something a little bit different. I'm uh, talking about telehealth and telemedicine. I'm talking about the financial case for widespread telehealth adoption. Are we there yet? You know, I recall back when I was in med school, way back in the mid-90s, you know, telemedicine was a new, new thing. It's always been the new, new thing for, I don't know, Nick's nodding his head. How many decades? A, a while. But for a lot of reasons, we've never really gotten there where it's really kind of taken over as a regular part of medical practice, right? It's something that's substantial and um, an address issues such as access, cost, you know, quality, you know, achieving that triple aim. And part of the reasons, as I go over here in this overview, this roadmap of what we're going to talk about is that it still faces many regulatory and financial barriers, uh, licensing barriers, reimbursement issues. But what I'll argue is that there are new rules for Medicare Advantage that CMS just promulgated uh, in this spring that might spur broader adoption. I'll explain why I, I'll make that argument. But even with that, there still might be infrastructure barriers uh, in that in rural layers that might persist, right? So in terms of, you know, penetration of a lot of smart devices, EHRs, we're there, but there's still some limitations when it comes to broadband and 5G, and I'll go into that as well. And ultimately, and this is what I want to present to the group, because I'm still not sure about this, you know, is this perhaps, you know, broader adoption of telemedicine, does this enable a viable public or private pathway to universal health care? Because if we just look at the demographics, everyone knows we're getting older, you know, as a nation. So more people living longer with chronic diseases. It's really going to put us already putting a strain on our healthcare resources. And to use a technical term, there's a double whammy of right of all these doctors and nurses and other providers that are retiring boomers. And so that's only adding uh, pressure to the system because we're not training enough doctors and nurses and other providers through our uh, medical training system. So there has to be some type of scalable solution that incorporates technology. And the question is, are we getting closer to that uh, through some of these newer regulations? So just to go back and kind of telehealth and kind of the overall failure to launch. So in 2019, it's you know it's been uh, estimated that telemedicine is a 40 billion dollar industry. Now 40 billion dollars globally is really small, right? When you consider that in the U.S. in 2017 we spent 3.5 trillion in healthcare, so still just a small drop in the bucket compared to our overall healthcare expenditures. But we do see you know some of these regulatory technical barriers that might be kind of falling at the edges. So this relates to insurance reimbursement policies for telemedicine, uh, state licensing, scope of practice restrictions, uh, and also the technology, the network infrastructure, and smart device penetration. So what are some of the challenging requirements? I'll focus on Medicare first, right? Because Medicare is a big you know, pair out there. Uh, so Medicare has a whole list of restrictions and limitations on when you can use telemedicine and get paid for it. One of the biggest ones is that beneficiaries must live in rural or underserved areas, and that the patient physically has to be located uh, 
at an improved originating site, which could be a provider's office, rural health clinic, or nursing home, etc. And the site can charge for a facility fee. So if you're a provider, that's another added layer of expense uh, in addition to the fee that you charge. But there is a slight exception that CMS passed a rule last year that the patient can be at home, be considered to be an originating site if it's a virtual check-in, which is you uh, interface with the patient and say, okay, do you need to come into the office or not? But you can't do a regular office visit when they're at their home. And there are also additional limitations. Uh, in terms of the technology, Medicare requires that you have uh, technology that requires real-time audio and visual uh, two-way communication. So it can't be asynchronous under these traditional rules where you can't just, you know, say, take an image of, of your skin and say, hey, what's this, doc? Under these old rules, you can't do that. There's limits on the type of practitioner who can bill for these telehealth services. And for a lot of these services, there's lack of parity with the fees that are payable for in-person services. So you see that really is a disincentive for a lot of these kind of provider groups are saying, well, let's invest resources in this. Like, why would we? We just force the patients to come to us and we will get more reimbursement. Uh, so in 2018, uh, the HHS and Office Inspector General issued this report where they found that over a third of CMS payments for telehealth failed the requirements. I mean, that's pretty, that's amazing, right? Over a third of them. And the, the five reasons, you know, correlate with what I discussed earlier, that the beneficiaries received the treatment were not in a non, were actually at a non-rural originating site. They were billed by ineligible non-certified providers. Uh, the technology they used was an unallowable means of communication, right? It wasn't this two-way audio-visual communication. Uh, it was a non-covered services. So not all services, even if they are technically capable of being provided by telemedicine, they have to be right in the list. You need a code for everything. Or, and this one makes sense, the physician is located outside the U.S. Uh, but some of the other ones, it seems like, well, maybe there's area for the CMS to introduce more flexibility. And you can see through all these, you know, one of the big concerns is obviously fraud. I mean, think about it. If you're saying, oh yeah, I virtually saw all these patients, uh, but you don't have adequate documentation for it under traditional fee-for-service, you're really setting up uh, an instrument for just, you know, bilking the government. So, you know, some of the concerns you can see are valid, uh, but it does seem that there's room for maybe introducing more flexibility. Now, if we look in the non-Medicare reimbursement space, right, so private insurers, you know, regulated by state insurance regulations, there's a lot of variation at the state level. So in terms of state telehealth guidance, there's variation between the site of service requirements. Ten states allow for the patient home to be the originating site. So you could be in your home, pick up your phone or your laptop or whatever, and then have this kind of two-way communication with your doctor, and more states are allowing that. Different rules on permissible types of technology, state by state. Like I said, some allow for kind of this asynchronous communication, so you can uh, access telederm or telepathology services uh, a lot easier. There's a lack of uniformity regarding kind of state mandates regarding insurance reimbursement for telemedicine. Uh, some states require parity for telehealth service reimbursements with in-person. Other states, such as New York's a big one, is silent on this issue. And a lot of states simply have no requirement whatsoever on whether or not providers should be reimbursed for providing uh, these virtual services. So once again, not much incentive if you're a provider or some kind of provider group say, we're going to invest heavily in this technology if you're not guaranteed that that capital investment, you can recoup it somehow. And also some other variations in kind of state rules. Some states have a requirement that before you can see a patient and say prescribe medicine, you have to see them physically first in your office. And when it comes to controlled substance prescriptions, some states, I mean, it's obviously very stricter for kind of opioids, which makes a lot of sense that you have to see the patient in person because you might in person see things that you wouldn't see um, over uh, a virtual visit. But some states have allowed virtual prescribing for ADH meds and other controlled substances, but there's still some variation there. So here I talk about this real example of this 
this Dr. Uh, Hollander from Pennsylvania who has 19 state licenses. You might ask, why would you need that? Well, he's really invested in kind of telehealth as a new way to kind of provide healthcare. And so he surveyed uh, his patient population, like roughly 3,500 patients, and asked them, okay, where do you travel for work, for vacation, et cetera? And he determined that, well, in order to treat all of them from their originating site, because they could be at the SEALs conference in Florida, or they could be working across state lines, uh, that he would need all these 19 different licenses. And, you know, obviously he said this is a big administrative burden to kind of keep up with all these licensing requirements. One avenue kind of legislation that has kind of eased this burden is the Interstate Medical License Compact that covers 28 states. So what this does, it offers either accelerated pathway or reciprocity waiver for, you know, medical providers to practice in different states. But physicians still need to apply for each additional state and pay those fees. And for states outside of this compact, you have to meet the full requirements. So still significant barriers for kind of practicing across state boundaries. But here's kind of what I kind of previewed earlier. Uh, so this new final rule that CMS promulgated in spring of 2019 that allows more flexibility for Medicare Advantage programs. Medicare Advantage plans cover over a third of Medicare beneficiaries. So this is a large population group, right? And lots of kind of uh, money in terms of healthcare revenues and billings, but still no expansion under traditional fee-for-service Medicare uh, under these rules. And once again, I think that goes back to the fraud concerns. So what the CMS calls these next generation ACO or Medicare Advantage plans, they have more flexibility to use telehealth in non-rural areas. So you can be an urban area that's not underserved and elsewhere, and also use kind of asynchronous treatment, which you can't use under the old rules for like, say, derm and pathology. And some Medicare Advantage plans already before this rule passed, you know, covered virtual care as a supplemental benefit, but they required plan members to pay extra. So once again, that's a disincentive. You're like, why should I pay extra for this? But if you see the convenience and they see that there might be some cost savings, maybe more of them start investing in this technology and patients maybe like it. Maybe they like not having to wait in line, get in their car and drive to the office and they might prefer this over kind of traditional provider interactions. So essentially, you know, this new rule makes telemedicine a core benefit for these kind of Medicare Advantage plans, which, you know, I would argue would mean that they would invest more in this kind of infrastructure. And if they're investing more for the Medicare Advantage, say, population, they're obviously going to leverage that for the non-Medicare population, right? Those under 65. So we see a broader expansion. And if anyone has, you know, children, nephews, you know, cousins, play Fortnite, whatever, younger people are just attached to their phones. I don't think that's too hard of a sell for people to, you know, deliver more services, healthcare services uh, via mobile devices. So what are some of the technological barriers? You know, I think on kind of the provider side, a lot of the barriers have fallen, right? If you look at all the major EHR systems out there, Epic and other ones, they have this functionality built in to provide this kind of two-way services and smartphone penetration and the apps that could run these programs are pretty ubiquitous, no matter what community you're in. The big barrier of the technology is broadband. So broadband access is still very spotty in large parts of the country, rural areas. So you might think, okay, well, if it's too expensive to kind of dig up all these lines, extend broadband, aha, 5G, cellular technology, you just kind of leapfrog over the old technology. The problem there is new 5G, the way it works, is still not economically viable based on market incentives for a lot of these rural communities because you need to have these nodes every several hundred meters. It makes sense in urban, suburban areas. doesn't make as much sense, or sorry, financially, market-wise for these uh, rural areas. So while 5G has already gone live in 30 cities as of yesterday in the U.S., the prediction 
predicting it might be 2025, 2030, when large swaths of the country actually get 5G, unless there is some you know, major subsidization from the federal government, state government, in order to kind of build out that network. Now, if, if you make the argument that, well, we're seeing all this you know, lack of access in this rural areas, we could maybe or make the argument that investing in this 5G infrastructure is a healthcare infrastructure play and not just about cell phone communication. In fact, that's what you know this bipartisan bill that Senator Thune from South Dakota and Senator Schatz from Hawaii, they've kind of put this together, making this argument that we need to do this. And obviously, it's an issue for their constituents where, where they live in Hawaii and South Dakota. Another complication, though, with this whole kind of rural 5G issue is kind of Trump's trade war and kind of the ban on Huawei with concerns that Huawei is too close to the Chinese government. They're going to build this kind of backdoor, which affects the security of these networks. And we can't allow them to do that. The problem there is Huawei, among the big 5G companies, has the most cost-effective and affordable solutions to build out networks. And some private providers that were actually planning to build out in these rural areas really relied on using Huawei equipment. And they said, we have to stop because we can't use the other ones like Cisco, Ericsson, because it's not cost-effective. So that's another issue that uh, needs to be navigated uh, when it comes to the infrastructure issue. I don't think it's you know an impossible barrier, but just requires more money, political will to invest in, into that issue. So can virtual care be better care than physically seeing you know a patient uh, within a provider office? Well, imagine this one scenario. You know, you have surgery, you have to do kind of post-op care. You know, a lot of it is you know typically. You know, I've had three knee surgeries, so I know how this goes. You wait like three hours in the waiting room, and then you know the doctor or typically the nurse practitioner or the PA will see you, look at your wounds, say, okay, here's a script for some more medication, and then you go home, right? And you have to drive home, uh, et cetera. But if you can do this through kind of smart app and over kind of you know, using your high definition camera, you can view the wound, the provider can look at it, they can assess your mobility, and kind of relieves you of the burden of having to drive to the office when you're not feeling well, and maybe you're on pain medication. So for that interaction, maybe it does seem like better care, right? And for other types of chronic disease management, you can imagine for diabetes wellness checks, other types of checks, you know, my Apple Watch has EKG on it. There are things that you can do using mobile technology where it might be a lot more convenient to kind of manage these chronic conditions. In terms of behavioral health, there's a lot of kind of interesting, you know, studies going on that, you know, telehealth therapy, medication management, there's more compliance uh, using this model. It also potentiates physician to physician, virtual consults, grand rounds. Uh, there's a lot of good evidence coming out of Project Echo, uh, which started in University of New Mexico. And ultimately, what kind of result in less delay and kind of getting treatment from the time you recognize, you know, say acutely you have a symptom and you need to see the doctor. With a lot of these EHRs, you can schedule appointment the same day. And even if it's not your doctor, if someone on the doctor's team, they can see the patient on one side of the screen in real time and then have the, all the patient's medical charts there and kind of go over it. Uh, so you can see how this would be a lot more cost effective and perhaps even lead to better quality of care. So the implication, I'd argue, for value-based care is, you know, maybe we'll see bigger adoption of this model and that the ACOs, another kind of buzzword, you know, so that okay, the time for the ACO is here. We all thought that, well, some of us thought that. Uh, I'm completely guilty, you know, during 2009, 2010, when the ACO was passed, like, okay, now we're going to invest in this this type of model. But, you know, really, they really haven't taken off and they had to be subsidized and they still haven't kind of promised the cost savings uh, that people thought they would. But here you can see that perhaps there's this incentive alignment that if the plan is taking on more financial risk by investing in this technology, get more cost savings by more efficient delivery of care, uh, smarter use of kind of teams of providers, mid-level 
level providers, like instead of just doctors, you know, doctors uh, managing a whole group of providers using artificial intelligence, automated technology to augment their abilities, you're getting overall average cost basis, lower cost of kind of labor, right, to deliver same level or maybe even higher quality services in kind of quicker amount of time. So that's the potential there for cost savings, kind of using this models. And it seems like with these new rules, the incentives are, are might be lining up more for this adoption. And that was the Week in Health Law. A big thank you to Professor Khan for joining us. Show notes, of course, are at twill.com. I am at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. Thank you for joining me and have a legally interesting but healthy week. <laughs>